Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of Matchit and the Other Guy. Welcome back, and you join Kevin and me outside my home on the banks of Lake Wiley in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we're just going to sit, relax, enjoy nature, and have a conversation. And as always, Kevin knows what we're going to be talking about. I never do. So, Kevin, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, it's something we've actually kind of touched on a couple of times, and I'm, I believe the listener would be very interested in hearing the story of the estate you grew up on. I think that's a fascinating uh, part of your history. Oh, well, yes. Um, I was incredibly fortunate to spend much of my childhood in a closed down. I won't describe it as abandoned. Uh, it did become abandoned later on in years, but when I lived there, it wasn't abandoned. It was just closed. But it was an old, stately manor house. And it was a wonderful experience for a young kid that, you know, when you're a young kid, you don't really appreciate these things. But it was like something out of the Narnia stories. You know, it was a wonderful manor, uh, an old, stately country house set in the middle of the English countryside. And we were surrounded by a hundred acres of uh, oak forest. It had streams and it had trout pools and it had proper Victorian walled gardens for growing fruit and vegetables and an enormous greenhouse. I mean, it was something out of a storybook. But as you know, as I've made very clear over many of our conversations that we've had, Kevin, I come from very work, much working class blue collar background so believe believe me if we didn't own the manor house my which parents, was quite a different story yes right. my parents worked there my mum worked in the office as the secretary and my dad worked as the caretaker and um we moved there when i was something like two or three years old so really young man. yes okay was, yes very young so I don't really have any other memories other than as a child living in this wonderful country house. Um, and it was owned by the government at that time. It was originally a private estate owned by the Haygate family. Um, and eventually the house got sold and it was bought by the government and it became what was known as a convalescent home for children. So after the Second World War, the 50s and 60s, and when, when I moved there again, it was right in the middle of the 1960s. It was um, it was a place for kids to go to to recuperate after surgery or hospital treatment, to get away from the rather low quality, damp accommodation, the tenement housing, the, the back-to-back terraced houses. A lot of um, deprived, fam- deprived families didn't have. Uh, they didn't have, you know, an awful lot of central heating since it didn't exist. So there was a lot of potential for kids to pick up viruses and illnesses, and they needed mm-hmm. a place to go to get over that. And so, uh, a nice was, environment and a little bit more sterile yes, at the same time. Yes, absolutely that. And, of course, there, it was a care facility. There were nurses and doctors, you know, on hand. And so uh, that's why we moved there. Uh, my dad again to become the secretary uh, become the caretaker my mum the secretary but after a period of years when we got into like the middle of the 1970s unfortunately these wonderful uh, um, homes just became too expensive for the government to continue to keep and so it was closed and needed to be sold but the 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 council the local council in the middle of england very decently kept my mum and dad employed at, at the manor house during the sale process but the, I mean the sale process as you imagine for an enormous 
country house. Took years, literally yeah. years. Stop with the sign up on Saturday, sell on Monday. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen. So this is where it just became a magical experience for me because um, I was basically, I was, you know, I, I grew up on my own, really, uh, you know, as far as uh, brothers and sisters are concerned. And um, so we had this, I had this wonderful estate all to myself. So when I described that, I, you know, I had to see my school friends from the local village was a two or three mile walk. It was a two, three mile walk through the oak forests and over the fields down to the village from where this manor house was. So in, inevitably I spent a lot of my time childhood on my own. So my mum introduced me to the love of reading and literature. Wonderful library at the manor house, and so she would always um, offer books to me to read and to to enjoy in that way. But also, as a young kid, when you're nine, ten, eleven, twelve, to have this wonderful, almost like film set experience of this wow. old manor house that was closed down, and I could walk around the corridors and these huge, great vaulted rooms, and up into the attics and the attic. Um, the lofts in the attics would go right round in a full circle around this manor house. So it would take you, as a kid, it would be like an, an hour-long adventure just to walk through the attics of the place. And then it had cellars as well. I mean, it's just a remarkable experience, yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, The Secret Garden. It's very the, much the that. Secret, yeah, I, I keep coming yeah. back to that one when you tell me about it and I visualize you know, what it must have been like. Yes, it had, uh, I just mentioned it had... Uh, what I would always call a you know, proper Victorian walled garden. And the idea of those walled gardens, uh, they were built with, within a square brick walled enclosure. And the, and, the, and the brick walls would be at least 20 feet high to try and create a little bit of a microclimate there to cut down on the wind and to increase the, the sun. So when the sun was shining on the brick walls, of course, all that heat built up into the bricks and then slowly it would sort of release that heat throughout the night and it would it made a huge difference in what you could grow in england with, uh -huh. yeah um well the greenhouse you said it had an amazing setup amazing greenhouse i mean the greenhouse itself would be it must have been a hundred feet long maybe even more than that and one of my one of my jobs as a young kid uh every evening in the summer when he got to about seven o'clock in the evening, dad would always say, Stephen, go and shut the windows in the greenhouse. And it was my job to go up, you know, walk up a good quarter of a mile away to where the greenhouse was and close all the windows. But because of the size of the greenhouse, I mean, it's a little bit like a very small version of Kew Gardens in England. It's just enormous um, building with all this glass in it. All the windows were controlled by levers and wine handles because they were very high up in the ceiling, you know. So uh -huh. there was a certain procedure you have to go through to close the windows down. And in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning, it was my job to open the windows back up again and, and, let, and let fresh air in there. But um, great experience. And also, when I talk about my, my love of camping and uh, being in the woodlands and there was no one else around, that's why I can say that because Again, we were surrounded by this wonderful oak forest. Um, and I could go camping in there in the summer holidays for a week and see nobody. You know, my mum and dad knew where I was. I mean, they knew in which part of the forest I was camping. I always he's, used to. He's out there somewhere <laughs> um, in that region. <laughs> I'd have a little campfire going and uh, I'd go, you know, trout fishing in the trout pools. And um, we had apple orchards and we had figs growing and peaches and raspberries and all sorts of things growing, you know. And, uh, yeah, so I would quite merrily just stroll off for a few days and the dogs would come with me. The dogs typically, we had a couple of dogs, and the dogs would spend most of the day with me um, 
in the woodland when I was camping. But as soon as it got to night time, they knew what was the most comfiest place for them and they just they went home. Trot on back. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. They'd leave me camping in the forest. Good and then, luck with all that. We'll yeah, see you in the morning. And then the next morning they'd be back again, you know, to, to check on me. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not stupid. Yeah. They know no, what's, what's what. That's right. But it was, for many reasons, I mean, it, it, it was a real great inspiration to imagination. And uh, you know that, I, you know, I enjoy writing and I enjoy, I enjoy storytelling. And, um, to be surrounded by all of that wonderful, almost magical experience was great for the imagination. And I can remember um, one of my favorite stories of all time written by Hemingway is Big Two-Hearted River. Uh, it's a short story that he wrote into two parts. And the Hemingway story, for those who may be unfamiliar with it, Big Two-Hearted River, it's simply a story of a chap that gets off um, a train, I think up in Michigan, in the States, and it's just the story of him wanting to go salmon fishing. And so he walks through forests and he finds a little campsite and he, he makes a little campsite and he builds a campfire and um, he, he collects grasshoppers in the morning and he puts them into a, a, a bottle with a cork, with a little bit of a, not a cork, with a little bit of a pine in there so that the grasshoppers can breathe. And then Hemingway describes this chap going down to the river and, and catching his first fish and the excitement of all of that. Well, when I, when I, I can remember this distinctly, when I told mum about my love of camping and camping experiences in the woods uh, of the manor house, she said, come with me, I know, that, I know that the story that you need to read. And we went into this wonderful, beautiful, library that the manor house had and she introduced me to Hemingway's short stories and she said when you go camping next time take this book of short stories and make sure that you read Big Two-Hearted River oh, and that was go. my introduction introduction to Hemingway so well that's I was, a yeah, lifelong passion of yours a life I want a lifelong passion but also I mean to be surrounded by all these wonderful books it was just it was terrific for me so in some ways you know, we've chatted about this before, Kevin, that I, I, I'm very comfortable being on my own. I can spend long periods on my own and not feel lonely. I can be alone, but not lonely. And a lot of the reason for that is because I spent so much of my childhood doing exactly that. You know, I'd be, I would be reading or I'd be writing stories or I'd be out in the, out in the woods enjoying the countryside or you know, strolling around the manor house, just enjoying, yeah. well, enjoying you're that. comfortable with your own company. Yeah. And yeah. You know, you're kind of forced to in a way because of your situation, but right. it worked out well for how you handled things. Yes. And I think, you know, for, for all of us, you know, the childhood, our childhood years are so important to our adult life. I mean, how we, how we look on the world, I believe, as adults is is based primarily on our experiences as kids i think what we were introduced to what we like to do what we told we shouldn't do what we told we should do all of those childhood experiences form us i believe as adults in later life so yeah at the time again when i was a young kid i just simply couldn't appreciate it because i was just surrounded by all of this and now when i look back on it and i i now understand why my imagination was so fertile, if you like, and why I, I, I ended up with a, a love of literature, a love of books, is because I was surrounded with them, and a love of camping because I was surrounded by the oak forest. So, 
you know, we've often chatted about this. What happens in childhood is what happens in adult life. But um, yeah, it was a, it was a very magical time for me, no question. Yeah, yeah very very much on that side of uh, the nature versus nurture argument on yeah. the nurture side. Yes, I, I, which I, obviously I so. there's been speculation on both sides for many years, and there's validity in both. But you know, nurturing is a big part of it because I've always said. You come out, you know, and people ask, well, was it odd, this, that, and the other? I'm like, well, you don't know any different. Yeah. If that's your experience, that's your experience. And you don't know of it any differently. You see it in other ways, but you grew up your way. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Whatever, whatever one's personal experience is as a kid, um, you've never experienced it any other way. You're exactly right. And uh, so, yeah, but that was, a, that was a wonderful, wonderful time for me. And one of my... One of my I always enjoy when I'm writing, Kevin, my, my book of short stories, these desired things. I'm always aware of wanting to include weather, meaning I want to, when I write a story or a collection of stories, some will be set in the snow, <clears throat> others will be set in the rain, some will be set in the winter, some will be set in the summer. I'm always aware of the changing of the seasons. And that is definitely a result of, of, of spending so much time alone as a child walking through the forests uh, of the manor house because I would experience that. And one of my favorite times um, is, is, is uh, I wrote a short story uh, a, 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 when with my dad, we, my dad and I visited Donington Park and it was to scatter the ashes of a dear old friend of mine uh, Mr. Goodman, who was the soldier that fought in the First World War. And in that story, uh, I, I wrote rather extensively of the snow and the sound of the snow under our feet as we were walking. And uh, the, the, not so much the footprints, but how when we're walking through snow, we leave much longer marks in the snow where our feet drag through the snow. And I wanted to make that point. And that, I remember all of that from childhood. But I have one particular memory <clears throat> of walking in the woods. Uh, this is a little pine forest, which is also in the manor house woodland. Um, and it was snowing very heavily. And snow, as you know, dampens ambient sound. Oh, yes. It, 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 doesn't it? It like, absorbs sound. And there's, everywhere there's becomes... A, 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 a snowy silence that is different than any other silence. Spot on. There is a snowy silence, yeah, that is different to everything else. That's exactly right. And this particular afternoon, I was experiencing that. I could hear the snowflakes hitting the snow base, if you like. It was that quiet. Of course, my, my hearing was a lot better than <laughs> Pre-roaring <laughs> engines uh, right. having their effect. Pre-Formula One days, yes. But I can remember hearing the snowflakes hitting the snow. And it was unbelievably silent. And I turned my head and, and in one tree, I remember this to this day, there was an enormous owl watching me, just absolutely silently. His big round eyes watching me as I was walking through the woods. So I was looking at him and he was looking at me and neither of us moved and we just stood there. He was looking at me for about 10 minutes and I was just, I was just mesmerized by this. The complete lack of ambient noise bar the snowflakes falling on the snow and this owl looking at me and thinking, oh, I don't know what he was thinking, you know, what is, what is this kid doing in my wood? Is he, is he a problem? You know, will he walk away? All of that. But those memories have stayed with me forever, yeah. Absolutely yeah, that's much magical. like the uh, the very iconic scene in Stand By Me where the boy and the deer 
Okay. Stop and, the same, stop and stare at each yeah. other. That reminds me of that for sure. Yes. Well, it, it, was a, it, it was a truly magical moment. I've never experienced anything like that since or, or before that time, before that day or after that day. But, yeah, a wonderful, wonderful time. And then, of course, you know, to walk through the snow and feel your boots crunching and squeaking on the fresh snow is a, is a wonderful Oh, and thing. that's totally something that brings you totally back is that, that term, saying the crunch of the snow. And yeah. That, you know, people can watch holiday movies all day long and there'll be snow everywhere, but to think about when you're a kid and just putting that little bit of weight and just, you know, and that's what it does. It goes crunch and you fall down a few inches yeah. each time you take a step. And no, it's, it's, we, we talked about, we just talked about Hemingway and Big Two-Hearted River. There's one, one little thing that Hemingway wrote that always sticks in my mind when he refers to the snow and the ice, the ice is feeling rubbery. It felt rubbery under the, under the character's feet and for years I was thinking rubbery ice Ernest where are you going with this but now when I think back you know you can kind of sense that it was a sort of it would move a little it bit it a would bit. squeak a little bit yes mm-hmm. it was nothing sort of it would undulate a little bit exactly right yeah yeah so thinking well there's my childhood memories and my and my childhood home of the, of the manor house in the middle of England what what what, what sticks out in your childhood there do you think what 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 event or events happen to you that you think oh, that's carried through to my adult life you know yeah there's there's we all have different ones and stuff and i have kind of the same similar experience i did have a sibling but she was much older right. so i essentially grew up separately because she was almost out of the house by the time i was born and came along there um but i tell you one thing that kind of is always it goes back to weather i've always loved a good rainy day yeah and now, granted, there's many times I may have something planned and that ruins it. Now, that, that's a definite exception. But if there's nothing I have to do, I feel more energized on a rainy day than most any other type. And I don't and I think I keep thinking something must have happened when I was a child where I had a wonderful rainy day. And it has stuck with me ever since. It's one of my favorite things. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And... I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think there are probably events that happened. I, I, I'm not sure if I believe in reincarnation. I'm not suggesting that, but there is something that, that we are we are open to experiences that we cannot simply cannot explain, and things that happen to us, like you know, your experience of a rainy day, you feel a connection to it, and you're not quite sure what it is. Yeah, and you don't remember why, why it's there, that should be, but it yeah. is there. And I feel the same. Whenever I, whenever I walk past or visit a, a monastery or an old castle, particularly a monastery or an abbey, I, and I've said this to many people, like, you know, if I could choose my ideal career, and I've had, I've had a wonderful career, I'm not complaining in any way, uh, but if I could choose an ideal career, it would be, it would be illuminating manuscripts in an old abbey in the middle of... In the middle of Italy, somewhere completely isolated from the world. Well, you and were I, born a few centuries too late <laughs> for your proper uh, proper uh, job job description there. But here's the thing: like, whenever I see an abbey, walk past an abbey, or I'd see you know monks in, uh, in a monastery, I feel this this wonderful, unexplainable connection to it. I feel a connection to it, and I can't explain it. Like you, in a way, can't explain what it is with this connection to the rainy day. Exactly. And there's, there's something, I mean, again, this must, must, must harken back to something I saw in childhood, too. Oddly enough, like, days of the week have color to me. Like, 
Yes, okay. Sunday is blue. Yeah. Monday is, is yellow. Tuesday's brown. Wednesday's purple. Thursday's green. Friday's white. And Saturday's red. And I think I mu it must have been like on the wall in elementary school somewhere where they were having the days of the week. And I bet you they were on colors that uh, corresponded with that. Yeah. I have no reason or no base of where I got that from, but it has always been with me that when I think of the day coming or the day we're in or whatever, it has that certain color. And I bet it was something that was a chart or something Yes, now isn't in that, younger days. Isn't that fascinating? The things, yes, it, it possibly was. It possibly was. Now we've talked, you've set my mind working now, we've, we've talked um, about my Auntie Phil in previous um, mm -hmm. conversations down here at A the few lake, times. Uh, who, who run the, um, the Stanhope Lodge pub in, in, in Derby. And talk about unexplainable events. I can remember, I used to love to spend the weekend with my auntie and uncle, Uncle uh, Buck, uh, Phil, uh, Lionel Buck, and, uh, and Auntie Phil. And I used to love spending the weekend with them because it was just a different experience to being at home. You know, it was an entirely different experience that there was this sort of pub full of people and I was allowed to sit on the bar stool and watch and, and sort of just people watch in the in the bar you know it's a wonderful change from being alone in the forests of of the manor house but I can remember sitting and making a cup of tea for my auntie Phil in the morning about she she wasn't an early riser because her late her nights were always late so an early rise for my auntie Phil was 10 o'clock in the morning was about when she'd get up and so I used to make a cup of tea for her in the morning and um, um, she'd read the paper and, and have a first cigarette of the day along with a cup of tea. I remember that vividly. And absolutely from nowhere, I mean, this came out of left field. She was looking at me and she wouldn't take her eyes off me for about 30 seconds. And she seemed to be looking back into the past, you know, like lost in thought, lost in thought. And then she said to me, Steve, Stephen, I think she used to call me. Stephen, you will go to America and have a career in the United States when you grow up. I was 10 or 11. Now, where did that come from? Exactly. Where did that come Why did she feel the need to say it? What was she, in her own mind, like, you, know, you could tell she was lost in thought. So something must have, you know, made her think of something. But just out of nowhere, she said, Steve, yeah, you're like, you're destined to go to the United States. You will have a career in the United States. You will go to America. Well, here we are on the banks yep. of Lake Wiley. At the time, you're probably looking there like, and right now, am I supposed to leave at the moment? What's, uh... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> at this age, I'm not sure if I'm quite ready, but. <laughs> yes, it was very much that. It's like, okay, Auntie Phil. Yes, I was kind of lost for words, but it stuck with me. It stuck with me. Yeah, she, I mean, the unexplainable events that happen in our life. That was one of them for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point when you bring, when you go, go stay with somebody for, you experience a whole nother lifestyle because everybody's got their interpretation of life and daily routine and yes. what they do. You're so in your groove as a child for so long that you kind of think, well, this is the way we do it. I'm sure everybody does it this way or very similarly and then you may get you know thrust into something that's you know out of your paradigm and then you're like oh this oh this is how some things happen differently and yeah it opens your eyes to certain things and some things you're quite surprised by and the, but yes you're absolutely right and i suppose in adult life taking that from the from childhood into adult life 
how many times have we heard folks say travel broadens the horizon you know, for you you've got to go out and see the world and experience different cultures so yes i think you're right from childhood it's 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 spending a couple of days with an auntie or spending a couple of days with some friends and being exposed to new things and the same way with with travel i mean um i've been very fortunate through through working with formula one that we traveled the world and uh yeah, I am. I, I believe I am all the better for it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, all the better for it. Do you feel the same way with your travels and experiences? I'm and definitely not as well-traveled as you, but what I have done has been, been wonderful. And, yeah, you've gotten to experience different things and just different, again, cli- you know, talk about the weather, just different climates. Being, you know, in Montana, you know, when it's yes. ski season is quite different than being in the Keys during the summer. And getting to see, you know, the different ways that people live in their environments is pretty amazing. And then you look back... And you start thinking about the ones, and you'll hear where people, you know, however many decades ago, or probably, you know, a century plus or quite more than that, you know, where people never left 30 miles from where they were born till the day they died. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. I often think about that. Yes, it's, um, you know, the conflicts that we see around the world. Um, there was a time when it would be village against, fighting against village location against an apple tree or whatever yeah. it would be right or, or no you eat your you you eat your gruel at noon not at what 1 p.m what are you doing yes and then you know so those sort of conflicts would be trying to secure the the best um fishing spot on the river would be one little commune against another and then that has sort of expanded to be one town against another and then eventually it would be one county against another in conflict and then one country against another in conflict as we all become more familiar and experience life around us so i suppose in terms of global conflicts now we're at the one one country against another country um and it it, it fills me over that you know the, the thought of war is a dreadful thing there's no question of that but it fills me with confidence that eventually uh we will be a united federation of planets i mean it might be that dream of star trek but when eventually we all become we all become absolutely comfortable with one another and then the 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 conflict to to the planet will come from somewhere else but it would be a united united world that's probably a little fanciful but i like that idea which is why i was always i was always Again, we, we never really want to discuss politics, but one, I could never understand Britain's idea of withdrawing from Europe because this, to me, is is a backward step. We want to be united, not fracturing, mm-hmm. that, right? That, that's how I feel about it. But it makes me think um, that idea of, uh, of we become more aware of different cultures when... I just mentioned before my my dear old childhood friend, Mr. Goodman, who fought in the First World War, uh, and he told me of his experiences, and I've written about him in these desired things. I I was 10 and he was 80, so there was a huge difference between us, but he wanted to impart that knowledge to me that he'd found uh, during the First World War. And the thing that he he kept coming back to time and time again was we had no... We had no quarrel with the folks on the other side. We didn't know who the folks were on the other side. And he said to me, I've never, I've never seen a German. It's not that I haven't, you know, I've got no quarrel with a German. I don't know, I don't know anything about them. And, and that was kind of eye-opening to me that he, he didn't see 
those on the other side as the enemy. They were just the folks that we were in conflict with for no sensible reason. The leader said, you're going to fight these people. Yes. And when Eric Maria Remarque uh, wrote All Quiet on the Western Front, which is an incredible story, uh, another anti-war story about the First World War, uh, his characters say exactly the same thing. He never, in the, in the text of that novel, he never refers to the enemy. It's just those on the other side. We were hungry, afraid, and dying. They were hungry, afraid, and dying. There was no, you know, we had no quarrel with anybody. We just didn't understand really why we were in conflict. We were just told to be in conflict with them. Well, wasn't it, it was in World War I where there's the famous story of the two sides uh, coming out of the trenches on, on Christmas Day, yeah. was it? And, and played... Yes. Now there's this the, the field soccer. Yes, yeah. this idea of um, uh, on on Christmas Eve that the uh, the the uh, the British troops, the Tommies as they were known as, the British Tommies could hear uh, the German troops singing Christmas carols, and it was snowing, and the because tr- the trenches actually, uh, in terms of distance, were not that far apart no. from each other. They could be as close as. 10, 15 feet away in certain parts of the of the line. They were incredibly close. But let's say on average they were 30, 40 feet apart from each other. Uh, and the troops on one side could hear the, the songs, the, the, the carols being sung by the opposite side. And then, the you know, law has it that the uh, LORE law has it that the, um, the British troops started to return uh, carols over the other side. And eventually this led to them you know, poking ahead above the parapet and, and getting out and saying hello to one another and exchanging uh, schnapps or vodka or, or whiskey, whatever they had. And then there is this story of, of playing Christmas uh, a Christmas football game on Christmas Day. Lots of folks have said that never happened. Lots of folks have said, yes, it did happen. Mm. So I well, want to believe it did happen. It's a great story, it's yeah, great, so let's go with it did. And my introduction to it actually yeah. was many, many years ago, or in the earlier days of MTV, when MTV would play videos, Yeah, uh, Paul McCartney had a video. Do you remember? It was I The Pipes of well. Peace was the song. I know it well. And it recreated that whole uh, yes. scene. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was very I, good, I, I think um, I want to believe that happened. And although there may be historians that say there is no historical evidence for that happening, there is anecdotal evidence from soldiers in the trenches, I'm sure, that said it did happen. So I'll go with that. I like that idea. Yeah, like better. I say, it's a, it's a great uh, legend, if nothing else. It's, yes, it's a great story. But that idea of um, becoming more aware of, of folks around us, experiencing different things, tasting different foods and being exposed to different culture... I like that idea. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful thing, which is why uh, I always love our conversations, uh, whether it's here or, or in other places. But, you know, as a, as a very new American, I love the experience of, of learning new things about my adopted country of America every day from you. You know, it's, it's great fun. It's a great fun experience for me. As mine as well. Yeah, it's... Um, it's fun for me to be in the United States, but it's a new experience, and I'm always up for new adventures. I like to, I, I, I love to listen to different accents and different dialects. Um, I, I, I like to see the difference between what's happening on the east side of the country to the west side of the country to the north. Because, you know, it's an obvious thing to say, but because America is so 
big. There's so many stories within the borders of the United States. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's one thing we're definitely is diverse in our people, our weather, our yeah. terrain, oh, uh, everything. Yeah. Yeah, and the one thing, I, you just mentioned the weather, the one thing that has become very apparent to me in sharp contrast to, to England is you don't underestimate or underestimate at your peril the force of the weather in the United States. I mean, when you guys have snowfall, you really have snowfall. When you have big winds blowing, mm-hmm. my goodness, they're big winds When it's tornado blowing. season it's, in, yes. in the Midwest. yes. Yeah, we really don't have that sort of thing uh, uh, in in England. We don't have that sort of extremes of weather. But yes, it's a it's a wonderful experience for me. I love to travel, love to see and try new things. But uh, but yes, going full circle, uh, the books that I have I have written, Kevin, and uh, my my love of storytelling, without any question, stems from those magical early days of youth when I was left alone to have my own adventures in this wonderful old country house in the middle of England. Well, you said you moved when you were about two or three, but how long when, when, How long were you there? We left uh, when we lived there right up until my dad died. Dad died in 1982, and it was, it was then that we had to leave um, because, so the house had then been sold and it became, it became a Leonard Cheshire charitable foundation. And um, it was um, it was a, a hospice, if you like, or, or a, um, a residential place for folks with multiple sclerosis, primarily. Okay. And so the charity, again, very kindly, uh, kept mum and dad on in their roles. And so I continued to live there, even though you know the house the house had been sold under new ownership. We continued to live there, and uh, but our house at, Ro- at the manor at the manor house was was. It was part of, it was a tied cottage within the within the, the manor house. So when dad died, we really had no choice but to leave. So I, we left when I was 18. So all yep. those sort of formative wow. years. So of, about 15 years? Yes, 15, yeah, 16 years. yeah. But of course, you know, 15, 16 years now go, go in a flash, but 15, 16 years when you're a kid, it's a, li- it's an, a lifetime. Oh yeah. It's an absolute lifetime, isn't it? They're such formative years that, and as we've said before, you know, one summer holiday away from school seemed to last several years. You know, when you're a kid, right? And all those adventures that unfold around us. But, yeah, summer, yeah, summers were just, you know, long stretches, and now they're like over in an instant. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Look at this year, you know, like, you know, one year uh, because of the COVID lockdown that we've all been experiencing. I mean, in some ways, this year has dragged on, dragged on. Uh, and in other ways, you know, that, the twenty, the year of twenty twenty has gone in, in a flash. It's just yeah. amazing. Now we're now starting twenty twenty one. Starting twenty twenty one. Yeah. Well, we better we better think about wrapping up our little conversation for this episode, hadn't we? Well, again, I think the I knew I knew the story uh, of the Manor House, and I thought our listener would really enjoy hearing about your starter days back then. So. Yes, and I'm always happy to talk about that. And there are a thousand other memories we can talk about from those days of my childhood in the, in the Manor House. You know, but. Um, it was it was a it was just a wonderful experience for my imagination, and uh, I'm very 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 grateful for it. All right, well, gentle listener, we hope you enjoyed that, and do join us again for another episode of Magic and the Other Guy. Bye for now. We'll be back.